Welcome to the Black and Cop Bio podcast series. It's Janae again, and we're back with another great episode. Before we get to our special guest, I'd love to share with you some exciting news. You may recall that we've recently announced that we are a nonprofit organization now. However, I'm also glad to say that we are an officially registered 501c3. This means that we are a federally recognized tax-exempt organization and can expand programming and resources in unique ways. This also means that any donations to BWCB are tax-deductible. We'll share more details soon about the best ways to make contributions, but for now, you can visit our verified PayPal charity page for one-time gifts. We are incredibly grateful to those who've consistently donated to BWCB thus far. And trust me, do know that this has genuinely made a positive impact on our community. It's supported Things like our website, our resources like Zoom, um, anything for our online platform, it's kept the lights on for us uh, for three years now. Um, So we're very thankful um, to those who have made this commitment uh, to supporting us for such a long time. Thank you. To this end, we are pleased to announce that the Black Women in Computational Biology Network has been selected as a 2023 Tech Equity Collective Impact Fund recipient. Tech Equity Collective, an initiative started by Google, accelerates Black innovation and representation in tech by bringing together community and industry partners to create programs and experiences that lead to tangible progress of Black tech innovators. The Tech Equity Collective Impact Fund, with support of Goody Nation, provides financial funding to U.S. Black and tech organizations, equipping aspiring Black professionals focused on core engineering and technical roles with the skills and tools to thrive in tech. We are proud Tech Equity Collective advocates. To celebrate this and many more accomplishments, we're hosting a virtual community mixer on Saturday, June 10th at 12 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. We'll also be sharing future plans for our community stakeholders, hosting roundtables, and creating networking space for you to make new connections with members and other computational biologists. Registration is free, yes, free, and you can find it at blackwomencompbio.org forward slash events. Other upcoming ways to engage include another podcast will be releasing after this in June, our Open Journal Club on June 28th, and our long-awaited live, on Zoom of course, Black and Comp Bio seminar, which is going to take place on July 26th. To stay up to date on these engagement opportunities, join us as a member or supporter and follow us on our social platforms. So I think we're now on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. We might have a Facebook page out there. And then there's also our website. So you can always stay up to date on what's coming and add things directly to your Google Calendar so you don't forget. We can't wait to see you there. Now on to the show. Today's episode was co-hosted by myself, Melissa Mento and Winfred Gatwa. Today, we have Dr. Shigun Fatumo, an Associate Professor of Genetic Epidemiology and Bioinformatics at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He is also the founder of the Nigerian Bioinformatics and Genomics Network. He has made some significant contributions to the field as it relates to genetic risk scores and capacity building for genomics research throughout Africa. And we are so excited to hear about his career journey, research efforts, as well as his outreach. And just a disclaimer, we continue to work on our audio engineering skills and appreciate all of your patience uh, during each and every episode. I must admit this was a difficult episode to record over Zoom, but we're so excited that we've gotten our full conversation ready to go for y'all to view and listen to. Uh, so thank you in advance for your uh, listening and we'll just go ahead and welcome Dr. Fortuna. Let's, uh, before we dive into some questions about your career journey and your research, let's start with a random uh, science trivia question. So, uh, what is the tallest type of grass and which African country uh, is the largest grower of this grass? (laughs) Okay, Okay. so that must be uh, Babu from Ethiopia. Yeah, is that correct? Okay, great. <laughs> okay. That was really quick. Um, okay. Uh, we can just start talking about how you got to where you are today. Um, how did you get here? Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? And in that, you know, did you know that science was always going to be part of your future? Okay, so thank you. That was a very good question. Uh, so I will start by saying that uh, I was born in Lagos in Nigeria. 
Uh, so I was born in a family of five, five other siblings. I'm the first of the, of the uh, family, uh, uh, one of the children. I'm, I'm the first of them. Um, so in my family, everybody have um, sickle cell traits or sickle cell disease. So my younger brother uh, has sickle cell disease. So what that means is that uh, he inherited uh, 240 uh, gene for my parents. And I inherited one, so I have sickle cell traits, and he inherited two, he has disease. So uh, as we're growing up, uh, he was always having unbearable pain, very sick every time. And, you know, I, I watched him crying every time, almost every month. It was really unbearable for him. So doctors say he has, he has a sickle cell disease, and everyone of us also has sickle cell traits. But the difference is that doctors, I was not getting sick, uh, even with the bites of mosquito. So it was very confusing for me because uh, doctors said even that 40 gene that I, I inherited was not doing any bad thing to me. It was even protecting me from getting malaria, malaria. So I was really interested in trying to understand what was going on for me and also also for my, my brother. So that's, that's at the early stage where I started having, showing some interest in genetics. Mm-hmm. And did you know at that time, um, like where was sickle cell research at that time? Like, did we know a lot about it or um, how did you get into sort of the science side of what was happening? Yeah, at that time, I didn't know anything about it. Well, yeah. I know a lot about the, the pain that my family was uh, passing through. And I, I, I also know a lot about the confusion I had in my head about why I had a 40 gene that was protecting me. Uh, so I grew up uh, trying to understand that. So eventually I went to university. I didn't study genetics in, in Nigeria, uh, maybe because there was no uh, university that was offering genet- genetics at that time. So for my PhD, so I started diving into my, my master's degree and PhD, started diving into understanding bioinformatics, uh, doing some genetics. And now that is all I do. Uh, genetics try to understand the contribution of uh, genetic variation into different kind of disease. I'm curious to know how your research interest uh, morphed between your, your initial interest in the field to what you did in grad school and how you kind of spun that to, uh, to running your own research lab now. Okay, that's, that's great. Um, so I started of uh, with a degree in computer science. Uh, so that means that I had capacity to do programming and I was interested in doing some bioinformatics to understand uh, some biological question. So that also means that I didn't have a lot of knowledge of uh, biology. I didn't have any knowledge about, about genetics. So my bachelor degree, my master degree was major in computer science. So that has a lot of challenges when I was going into doing genetics because I did to learn what is DNA. And uh, so I just uh, DNA translate from one state to another and all kind of stuff. I did to learn that. So I had to do that on, on my own. So I had to learn so many things, uh, including um, uh, the very basic thing that you think, uh, you think about. So I found it difficult initially to understand all that uh, gene, how does gene work, how many genes do we have, and, and all kind of stuff. So it was uh, a bit challenging for me, uh, uh, coming from a different background of computer science to start learning some stuff about biology and also some stuff about uh, genetics. But over time, I was able to understand the basics. Nice. I'm just, I'm curious to know what, uh like you were going from computer science to genetics, what was something that you learned that was just like, just really mind blowing for you at the time? So something that was said, mind blowing. So that there's so many things that, that have been mind blowing. Uh, so the first one was the, the uh, Human Genome Project uh, in, uh, in, in early 2000, 2003, uh, when the Human Genome Project was complete. So you would think that that was a genetic project. But the story in the news that you need people that have background in computer science to analyze data. The story was that we did a large computer to store the data. So it wasn't really about the genetic, uh, about genetic alone. 
And so many people like me were moving from genetics to try to understand that biology. So that was that was mind blowing. So you know, in, in those days, people would try to study one subject. I know that subject very well, but things have changed a lot now because uh, now we need to be multidisciplinary. So the fact that you study biology does not mean that you don't know how to write programming or you don't you don't know how to, you, don't, you don't know mathematics. So so that was something that was very challenging at that time. So even now, uh, when I look at the amount of data uh, in, the, in, my, in my group that uh, maybe PhD students or postdoc have to analyze, that's, that can also be very challenging because um, you need a, a, enough resources to be able to do uh, that kind of an, an analysis. Right. Uh, thank you, Segun. And uh, yeah, just to follow up on what Melissa has covered, would like to like know what your experience has been so far like transitioning from being a graduate student and now you've grown your career to a faculty member yeah so i've had a different experience um from being a graduate student to uh, what i do now so i i mentioned one experience is trying to understand the very basic of uh, uh, biology and, and genetics uh, which was difficult. Of course, for people that study biology, they, they, they think that, oh, it's, it's easy to learn biology. It was more difficult to learn computer science, but that's not, that's not the case every time. So people, everybody's trying try to understand uh, so, uh, something. So that's one experience. Other experience is trying to get um, uh, the right kind of uh, knowledge uh, for the, this kind of generation that we have. So like I said, I study in, in Nigeria. My bachelor degree, my, my, my master degree and my PhD were in Nigeria. So it was very, very difficult for me to really uh, penetrate through the global world, to be able to be seen and be visible with what I'm doing now. Uh, most of my colleagues are either studying in Cambridge or studying in uh, Oxford or studying in Bristol or studying uh, the big university that all of you are today. Why didn't study in other, other universities? So it was really a little challenge trying to come out from the from the uh, from my university in Nigeria yeah. to be able to do what I'm doing today. So one thing that really helped was that I had my postdoc. I one of my postdocs in the US. I did another postdoc at the Welcome Saga Institute at, at the University of Cambridge. So those postdocs gave me a lot of leverage to be able to move and understand uh, how how research works uh, in this uh, in developed world and able to uh, move to what I'm doing today. Yeah, actually, I would love to ask you more about um, that because that is an experience that a lot of our members also encounter um, when we're talking about. Um, who actually gets to participate in the global landscape of science. Sometimes, even if you have the credentials, the degrees, you know, the experience, there's a barrier there of who gets invited um, to share their knowledge. So I guess just what is your perspective on what are those concrete challenges, um, especially for our members from the continent? And how might you navigate something that can be so difficult? Yeah, so uh, it can be very difficult not to be seen uh, or not to be recognized. Uh, but what, one thing that is very important is that if you do excellent science, people are going to see your work. So if you do excellent science, you publish your paper in a in good journal, there's no way people are not going to see your work. And when people see your work, they're going to contact you. They're going to want to collaborate with you. And they want to invite you to conferences. They want to be a keynote speaker. They want to do to be an embedded speaker. They want to come to the university and give seminar because they have seen your work. Because this is a, this kind of research, it cannot, it cannot be hidden. But many mistakes that uh, some of our colleagues may, uh, make, uh, particularly people in a low uh, income country, is that you do average research or you do low quality research and nobody read us, nobody see that. So I think for all of us, we must aim to do an excellent research and put it, put it out there for people to see. So that's one way to be visible. Another way is that now we now live in a very small world. You know, you can be in either in a, in a table or you be at a corner room in London or in New York and just put something on Twitter, everybody will see it. <laughs> so if you have done some very brilliant work, even though you have not published that work, 
you can put it on the on, on Twitter and say, oh, we've just completed our work and this has been an exciting work. We found S, Y, and Z. And put it there. Everybody will see. So I use Twitter a lot. I use uh, LinkedIn a lot to publicize my, my work. So I think uh, now there are no excuses to say that, uh, to, to, to say people are not seeing what, I, what I'm doing. We must make our own personal efforts to put out what we are doing out there. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll come back to uh, your online presence and how important that is in a few questions. So, yeah, uh, thank you very much, Segun. Indeed, I went through your portfolio and I realized you've massive experience with uh, postdoc. So I was wondering, do you have like a go-to site whereby you can recommend graduate students to actually visit for post-PhD positions? Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, that's one way. Of course, there are so many websites. But for my own postdoc, I did, I did two postdocs. And I did not apply for any of those two postdocs. So one thing that is very important to know is that mentorship is key. Uh, you need to be in the right setting. Uh, you need to be, you need to, uh, be in the right uh, network. So for my own first postdoc, um, I went for a, a workshop in, in Ibadan, in Nigeria. And uh, so my supposed uh, postdoc uh, supervisor came from the U.S. Uh, and uh, she came from the U.S. I was at the workshop and I was trying to help her. She didn't ask for the help. I was trying to help her in the workshop to help the students, even though I was also a participant in the, in the workshop. And she noticed me and started talking, started talking to her about my project, what I was doing. And that was it. Three months after the workshop, she sent me an email. She, she gave me an offer to be a postdoc. So I did apply for that. <laughs> that was very interesting, you see. Yeah. So that was my, that was my first uh, postdoc. Very interesting. So what I'm saying is that if you are in the right network of people, uh, so things can be much more easier. Uh, so that's one way. And another way is, that, of course, you can apply to many places. And even when you apply to many places, don't forget that they also need recommendation. So you need to have some mentors, you need people that can advise and say, oh, apply to this particular place or apply to that particular place because they, they understand how this thing works. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we have you know, a lot of people in our communities who are deciding if the postdoc is the right path for them. Um, in short, what would you say um, was your main motivation for deciding on the postdoc? What did you get out of the experience that was um, different than your doctoral training? So, like I said, my doctoral training was completely different. So my, my master's degree and PhD, they were in bioinformatics, and I was awarded a degree in computer science. So that means that I had no understanding about genetics. So for my postdoc, I was looking for opportunities to learn something new. And uh, it was in my postdoc I learned how to, how to perform uh, genome study and all those other sort of methods around that and how to take some le- a leading position you know if you are doing if you are uh, in this kind of um, landscape so you have to be able to work in uh with collaborator all over the world all over the world so it was my postdoc i had that experience of uh, working with collaborator from all over the world and trying to coordinate uh, a big project so those kind of skills are very important. Both soft skills and hard skills, they are very, very important. So for me, what I did for my PhD was almost completely different from what I did for my, my postdoc at the Sankar Institute. And, and, and since then, I've taken on board to continue what I did after in my postdoc at the Sankar Institute. So um, in, I'm curious to learn about your role as an associate professor now. Can you tell us, like, what your, like, if you had to put it in percentages, what your role breakdown is, how much time do you spend teaching and researching? And uh, yeah, let's just start there. Okay, so I think um, I do a lot of time doing research and I also do a lot of ad- administrative work. Uh, today I've been battling with a grant and see how much has been spent and how much is not spent, how much do we have. 
all those kind of stuff when I was in my postdoc. I never had an idea that I would be doing that. Uh, so I uh, talking about uh, ethics or things that admit stuff, boring things that we don't like to do, but I have to do them. And so, but I like today also, I've, I've taken my time to look at papers from two PhD students. Uh, people have been reviewed, look at it, read, read through the paper and ensure that they are of high quality before they send to journal. So I do a lot of that also. And also do a lot of, I do some teaching. I don't do a lot of teaching that, like I used to do before. So I teach at the London School of Hygiene and Topical Medicine. I teach at GWAS. Uh, I, I did one uh, in March. I'm doing another one in May. So I, could, I can do that maybe about two or three times in a year. So I don't I spend all of my time teaching. But it depends on what you, what you mean by teaching. Because uh, every week I have a one-to-one meeting with my patient student and postdoc. So for me, that's also a form of teaching. So, so we discuss their projects, uh, we look at the projects, and they also discuss other things that are, that are important to them. So that's the time I have, I have that time with them to uh, make sure that they are within target for their PhD and they complete at the, at the appropriate time. So I do teaching, I do research, I also do kind of community development. Yeah, I really love that um, mentorship seems to have played a really pivotal role in in your career. And you're all, it also looks like you're doing the same thing for your PhD students as well. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about your mentorship philosophy and, um, yeah, how that's valued at your institution? So that's an excellent question. Uh, mentorship is, is key for the kind of uh, work that we do. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a PhD student. So at my stage, my current career stage, I still have mentors um, and I, I ask them questions. And I want to, because they are, they are people that are ahead of me. So they know more than me and they can guide me. So I don't need to make the mistake that they make because the reason why they are there is to be able to, uh, to guide me. So I think a mistake that many people make is to think that they can be self-made or they think that it is fine for them to navigate through themselves without relying on anyone. Of course, they might get to their destination, but it might take longer to get to their destination. You could as well just rely on a mentor who can guide you. So I think mentorship is very key. Um, so I... I've received a lot of mentorship from different people, people in my feed and people that are not in my feed. And those mentorship has been very, very useful for me. And I try my best also to provide a uh, different kind of mentorship to different people, uh, including my PhD student and my postdoc and also the younger people in the, the group. So my philosophy is that uh, if you want to go faster, you should ensure that uh, there's somebody ahead of you that can help you navigate the road. That's beautiful. I love that. Could you uh, talk about like the different stages of professorship at your institution and like what stage you're in and what those evaluation processes to get like promoted are? Okay. So in my session, uh, most people after their PhD, uh, they can move on to be a research fellow. Uh, so to do a research fellow, it's more like a, a postdoctoral position for a while. So you do research fellow, and uh, from there you can move on to be an assistant professor. Master professor in my, my institution is seen as a junior position. Uh, from there you move on to become an associate professor. And from there you move on to become a professor. Uh, so this is this is where I understand this works at the London School of Hygiene and Medicine. So to move from one state to the other, uh, there's always an uh, interview. You always you have to apply for um, for a promotion. Uh, so there's a guideline, very clear guideline on how to move from one career state to another. Uh, so, but if you are moving from say associate professor to professorship. So this uh, guideline is a bit different uh, because your application needs to be sent to uh, to external reviewers uh, who will look at your application and say you are really qualified to become a professor. So I think this is kind of this is what, what they do at the London School of Hygiene and Medicine, uh, which might be slightly different from other other universities, but very similar to many 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 universities. 
you've talked about the importance of mentorship and how you've gotten to this point already. Um, but what has been really key for you at your stage um, to maintain those relationships, especially since it, it seems like, you know, in academia, uh, that really is what goes into your evaluation for getting a promotion and moving up and being able to get more research resources for your work. Um, so the main question is how to maintain um, those relationships as you progress in your career. Yeah, I think uh, whether you want to maintain that uh, relationship is up to you. Um, for me, I'm still collaborating with my previous uh, PhD supervisor and my previous uh, postdoctoral supervisors. I'm still collaborating with them because we do uh, things that are very similar. But in some cases, it might be that you don't have to collaborate with them. Maybe people have moved on on their way. Uh, but what I will always advise is that you know when you leave your supervisor, uh, don't just leave and jam the door because you can't ever tell you might need that door, that door again. So uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you have to continue collaborating with them, but you just leave in a very in the best way uh, uh, possible. So I have the, I have a good relationship with all my previous uh, supervisors and mentors, and I hope uh, that will continue for a very, very long time. Yeah, that's so important. And I think also as a current PhD student, um, you sometimes forget how important uh, people's words are for you, um, their support um, in spaces where you're not always, you know, welcome to or a part of. Um, it seems like it, it really does go a long way. And I'm definitely starting to value that more as I progress. So thank you for sharing uh, different ways that can look like as you uh, just maintain connections with people. We're now going to start talking a little bit more about your impacts outside of your role, um, your many roles, um, and especially your online presence, your science communication, and the way that you engage uh, critically with uh, the scientific community, which is something that is really important to BWCB. Um, one thing I noticed is that you are very active on YouTube. Um, you have a very inviting presence there. And um, the topics that you share are super important uh, for students and trainees and actually scientists at all stages. Um, so what motivated you to start just sharing your stories there? And uh, why is that work important to you? <laughs> okay, am I? <laughs> Okay, so I I, I use uh, different social media platforms for different things. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm on Twitter, so I use Twitter mainly for academic purpose or scientific purpose. So I do I do tweet things that have to do with my my career or my job on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I don't tweet anything personal on Twitter, so that is that is personal to me. I don't I just use that for a professional uh, platform. Mm -hmm. So the same thing also with LinkedIn. So I also have, I'm on Facebook, but Facebook is only, it's personal. So I can put family picture on Facebook, but, but you never see me put family picture on Twitter or mm -hmm. on, on LinkedIn. And so I also, I've, I've done a bit of YouTube recently, mm -hmm. and I do that purposely for something completely different. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I have so many people, friends and family uh, live in Nigeria, in Uganda, in Ghana. And they, they, they keep on asking me the same question over and over again. So mm -hmm. I find it useful to use YouTube uh, because I just uh, record uh, the answer to that question on yeah. YouTube. And so that's when somebody asks, I just say, oh, this, this is a link. So you can go ahead and listen <laughs> to it. So that was the, that was the reason why I am doing, I'm now on YouTube and I try to provide uh, some solution to uh, some very important questions to some people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think that's really impactful, though. Um, I can guarantee that like my parents don't necessarily know, you know, the ins and outs of what I do. But being able to boil down resources that could be really important to people in our communities is um, really amazing. And, and, it, and it is a skill. Um, um, so on Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, can you share more about the types of content that you share there and what people might expect to find if they follow you? Yeah, so on, on Twitter and LinkedIn, so I share a little content about 
my work, for example, if I publish a paper in Nature and I want everybody to know about it, I just put it out there in, in, uh, on Twitter and say, oh, see what we've done. Mm-hmm. And I put that there because I want, people to, I want to hear people's opinion about uh, the kind of science that we do in my group. I also want them to be aware about the, uh, the current state of work that is uh, on- ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, genetic risk score uh, is, is very new in the African settings. Mm-hmm. And my group, we've done some uh, two amazing work. Uh, one we publish in a, a journal called Diabetes Care, and second one we publish in Nature Medicine. So those two uh, pieces of work are very, very important. Mm-hmm. So when those were published, I put it out there so, so that people can, I can get to, to see uh, the view of people about the work uh, so that they can, so that they can, I can also signpost them to read the work that we have done, and that co- that can also help to uh, improve citation of the of the work that we have done. And from that, you see people are uh, contacting us to say, "Oh, we would like you to come to my university to present this work, this very exciting work." Uh, I think this kind of content are very very important. And uh, sometimes there are so many good news coming up from our, from our group. Uh, just like last week, uh, one of my postdocs uh, was awarded a prestigious uh, welcome early career fellowship. That was a big achievement. So I put that there uh, just to encourage other people uh, that it is possible and also mm-hmm. to, to know what is going on uh, in, in the group. So I always put that content about uh, those kind of good news. Uh, we've had so many people in my, in my group that want one fellowship or one award or the, or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a PhD student, uh, say in Uganda, uh, you see another, another PhD student in Uganda on Twitter that's won an, an award. That would be, that would, that would tell you that, oh, it is possible. I can also do it. Mm-hmm. Or, or you can ask question, uh, what's, where did you apply to? How did you apply for this fellowship? How can I mm-hmm. take a step to do this, to do this? So that's one of, that's the, that's, those are the reasons why we put out those things on social media. Yeah. And thank you for really breaking that down. Um, I think it's really important that we continue to use some of the, the Twitter and the LinkedIn, because just like you said, it makes it so easy for people to connect and actually reach out for help rather than just passively receive content and not necessarily be able to engage and give feedback and share. And so. Um, I think that it's, yep. it's really, really great that we're able now to connect communities and especially on social media where we're just in an era of everything is being shared on such a larger scale. We're learning about so many different cultures and backgrounds and stories. And, um, it's only right that we, we bring some of those connections to science. Um, so speaking of connections, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the mission of the Nigerian Bioinformatics and Genomics Network, um, and what led you to start it? Wow, excellent question. So, so Nigerian Bioinformatics and Genomics Network, uh, I founded that a couple of years ago uh, for very similar reasons, uh, because uh, at that time, almost every day, and I mean almost every day, so I was receiving email from a young uh, scientist in, from Nigeria uh, which is my country of birth, and they were they were interested in uh, learning about bioinformatics. They want to do some internship. They have some question, and that email kept on coming, kept on coming. So I was looking for a platform where I can put everybody together and teach everybody if that if that was possible, or guide everybody if that was possible. And that was the motivation for starting that uh, that platform, Nigerian Bioinformatics and Genetics Network. So that was the reason why we did that. So we set up that organization. We asked people to join for free. Uh, we were organizing some uh, symposium. One of the one of the symposium that webinar that we did was uh, how to write uh, grants or how to do something like mentorship. Uh, we organized conferences. Uh, we we organized the, the very first Nigerian bioinformatics conference in Lagos. We had more than two hundred people came for that conference. We organized another one, second conference in a, a place called Kuala State in Nigeria. I just put everybody together, and those conferences they come up, they come with a workshop to train people, because it was not possible for me as a person to to try and train each person one after the other. The way they were coming to me by email, but that platform 
provide that opportunity to support as many people as possible. So since that was done, uh, just last year, I've now handed over that platform as a president to another president uh, who is not leading the organization. Drawing from um, your earlier points when you're talking about challenges that you had, for instance, uh, transitioning from your bachelor's to uh, doing your master's and your PhD, yeah, I would like to ask uh, your thoughts on what's the importance of diversity, equity, and uh, inclusion, and especially in computational biology and bioinformatics. And on top of that, uh, what are your thoughts on ways in which we can actually increase uh, representation of uh, the Black people and as well the underrepresented population? Wow, excellent. Excellent question. <laughs> of course, I was expecting this question because uh, that's one uh, thing I'm known for. Uh, for my visibility, uh, you know, I'm very, I'm an advocate for uh, the need to increase diversity in genomics. And I've spoken about that. And I even got an award for that for, uh, recently where from the MRC uh, UK. So it is very important to in, increase diversity in genomic study for many reasons. And I think, I think it's better to give an example. If you, are, if you ever had uh, low cholesterol or if you have heart attack, it is likely that you'll be given a, uh, a medication or a drug uh, that, was, um, that was developed from a gene called PCSK9. So PCSK9, um, I just give you the story of how that, that particular drug development was made. That was discovered because some African ancestry individuals were involved in a particular genetic study. So in that particular study, they discovered that those African ancestry individuals, they have uh, this gene, uh, PCSK9, they have, they have mutation in this gene called PCSK9, which made them to naturally have lower cholesterol compared to other population. And from there, we have, we have this drug. And this drug that we have now is not only useful for African ancestry individuals, but it's also useful for all population. So imagine that those Africans have not been included in that, in that study. What that means is that we will not have that drug today and there will be increase of heart attack and uh, all kind of uh, disease that we have today. So that's how important it is that we, we, we include all population in genomic study. Because uh, the, 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 pop, the purpose is to be able to find, make our life better, make us live longer, make us live earlier. So we must look, include all population. And most importantly, African has the greatest genetic diversity than all the other population. So those diversity are very key for precision medicine are very key for drug development. So we cannot continue to continue genomic study without African data involved. So these are key, really, uh, because of a key discovery that must be made with this kind of data. Yeah, um, thank you very much, um, Segun, uh, for that. And uh, just to highlight something that uh, you mentioned definitely with the formation of the Nigerian uh, Bioinformatics uh, Network. Uh, what's like one of your greatest highlights from just forming this network? Are there some of um, accomplishment that you're like, oh yeah, I'm excited I did this uh, for the young Africans in the continent. Yeah. But I, th I think what I can aspire achievements, uh, not only for Nigeria, also for Uganda and uh, for Mali and other places where I work in Africa, it's always about the opportunity that I have to develop capacity. That's always what I cast at my, at my achievement. Because I know the importance of that. So you train person that will be in capacity to train other people, that will be in capacity to train another person, and so on and so forth. And that's how we develop. So my achievement is that I've had the opportunity to train so many people in Nigeria, uh, also so many people in Uganda, so many people in, in Mali. And that's always very exciting for me 
because you don't know what those people they'll be doing in this year, in this year. Uh, just a few months ago in February, I was in, in Cape Town attending the uh, conference and I met my former supervisor, former PhD supervisor. He was very excited to see me, he was very excited to see the kind of work I do and the kind of people that I, I train now. So I would also like to uh, look forward to maybe in the next few years, I see my PhD students or my postdoc also leading research group or doing amazing science and publishing in nature or, or, or science or making some very big discovery. So I think that's my main achievement is the opportunity I have to train other people. Yeah, I do appreciate that. Yeah, and definitely thank you very much for what you do for all of us and yeah, just putting us out there. Um, uh, sorry, I did want to just also carry on. Sorry, sort of expand on like what it means to be part of capacity building efforts. And thank you for shedding light on what that means. You know, it means training someone so that they can train someone and really keep the efforts and the, the learning and community within the community. And I think a lot of times, at least what I observe in the U S especially in genomics, it's sort of the other way around more about how much researchers can extract from uh, Africa or African genomics rather than actually contribute right to to the efforts to train the next generation. So do you have anything, um, any, any light to shed on, on that contrast and um, that importance? Okay. <laughs> so uh, every mentor or every supervisor uh, needs to see that they have responsibility uh, to their mentee, uh, to their PhD students and to their postdoc. Uh, you have responsibility to their future uh, because uh, the kind of uh, training that you give them uh, can determine what they are going to be doing in the next five years or 10 years or 20 years or even 50 years. So personally, that is how I see every person that I have the opportunity to, to come across me. So I see myself as, oh, this is my responsibility. I must create uh, a good impression with this person. I must help this person to build their career or to build their future. So that is personally what I say. And I, and I hope that uh, all of my colleagues all over the world in the US and the UK also can see their responsibility that way, that we have, uh, it's an opportunity for us to be able to contribute to somebody's life, to be able to contribute to somebody's career. So that is what I say. So I don't see the students as um, I want to take something from them. I want to get something from that. I don't think it is right to see that uh, you are you want to get from there without giving back to them. For every success that I've recorded in my in my group, I always tell my postdoc and patient that when they win, I win. So when somebody win a fellowship or they win a grant or they publish a paper, it is their success. It's also my success because it contributes to me. And so I want to work hard to make sure that they win because that also helped me to win. And that will help them also in the, in the future. So that's, that's where I see it. And that's where I think that every person should see it. I would not like to underscore your work and definitely um, the contribution of H3 Abounet and definitely H3 Africa in sequencing of um, human DNA and specifically of um, African ancestry. But still, we are lagging behind. I've read a couple of your papers whereby you've really, um, you've clearly stated that there is a very great disparity uh, between definitely the number of genomes uh, from African continent compared to, for instance, the European ancestry, which is the leading so far. And I'm wondering, do you have like thoughts on what's the future of genomic research in Africa? And what are some of the hurdles and barriers that you think one can face when pursuing that? And definitely, I think uh, you being a principal investigator in this case, probably you've thought about some of those barriers and uh, what do you think about them? Yeah, okay. I think um, this is very important. And I would like to start by mentioning that in the last 10 years, 
we have made a lot of progress in genomics in Africa, even though uh, Africa is still underrepresented in genomics. So previously, uh, previously many, many years ago, so the approach is that uh, people from the high-income country, so they fly to a low-income country, uh, they go to the rural, uh, rural community and uh, take, take sample, and also fly back to their country without any consideration to those communities where they have taken sample. But that has changed. You know, parachute science is no more uh, what it used to be. You know, people don't, cannot do that again for genomic study, but things have changed. In the last 10 years, we've had the H2 Africa. There have been a lot of investments in Afri Africa from the, from the NIH, from the World Controls, and from other, other sources. And that investment, there have been so many people that have been trained, uh, including PhD students and postdocs. Like I mentioned at the beginning, I was one of the very first postdocs in 2013 that was trained from the Asia Africa. And I'm so happy with what I'm doing today. I'm just one of those people, uh, many people that have been trained, that have had opportunities to now move on from, what, uh, from that training and taking their career for that. So this is very important. And I believe. Uh, solely that uh, for us to be able to increase diversity in genomics, one approach is that we need to train more people. So when you train more people and they know what they are doing, they will be in a position to be able to be a leader and taking uh, initiative and defining the agenda for genomics in Africa or in their own country. So capacity building is key. The, more, I, the kind of training that I had, like that I had, like I mentioned, I had my I had my postdoc at the Welcome Saga Institute. So during my postdoc, I was uh, in a position to uh, be one of the lead for that project. And since that time, I've, I've not been taking that lead position at the MRC in, in Uganda. And if there are many people also doing that, maybe somebody that gone for postdoc in the US are doing that in Nigeria or somebody that gone for postdoc in the UK doing that in Kampala or doing that in, uh, in, uh, in Congo or in Mali or in Ethiopia or in Egypt. So that means that we're going to have multiple effects of many people uh, doing genomic study. With that, we are going to be able to improve representation of genomics, in, uh, of African in genomics. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that especially really uh liked how you've highlighted um what quote-unquote parachute science or sometimes called helicopter science used to look like like especially in um developing countries but i think that now um that we do have more frameworks and opportunities for people to be trained and have their skills shared and um actually also be be trained in ways where they can make direct impact on their communities. Um, I, I definitely agree with you and uh, appreciate you sharing how much progress has been made and where we are going um, as a collective. So we'll we'll wrap up with a closing question uh, where we'll just ask you to take a look back over your years as a faculty member or even just as a mentor in general. What advice would you give to your younger self or your <laughs> former self? Um, are there things that you wish you had known before or, or done differently? Um, what's that tidbit there? Okay, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Okay, I think uh, one thing I would say is uh, have mentor and listen to them. Um, if you are very lucky to have a good mentor, it, it just it helps to move faster um, so you don't uh, move around for too long. So that's one advice I will give to my younger person. And also, I would say that when I was coming up as uh, doing my bachelor degree, you know, it, these days, um, people, you cannot just study computer science, you know, <laughs> that would be multidisciplinary. If I were in university, I would like to take course in genetics or take course in biology or take course uh, that are very relevant to uh, what I'm doing today. I didn't do that when I did my bachelor degree, and I had to learn that in a very hard way. So if I were advising my younger person, I would say, even though you have studied computer science, 
So think about uh, the kind of world that we have is very multidisciplinary. Can you take us even in history? You know, take us just say something very different and and just enjoy it because those are very very clear. And one other advice is that we're now in the age of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, internet internet age. So these are very key, and those should be used. Should maximize them, optimize them, uh, use them in a legal way that will help to boost your career. Absolutely, I think also we can also admit, you know, being in such a an interdisciplinary field. I'm sure a lot of us wish we had, you know, more math or more biology. But the best thing, especially that you know, I've learned from you today, is that luckily we're doing things in community and. I think personally, that's one of the best uh, aspects of our field of computational biology. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Fatima. We really enjoyed learning about your research and your outreach efforts, capacity building in in, in community. Um, We wish you luck in your future endeavors and would really welcome any future collaborations between the Nigerian Bioinformatics and Genomics Network and Black Women in Crime Bio Network as well. So um, looking forward to any future potential collaborations there. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Have a nice day. You as yeah, well. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to another podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Until next time. The Black Women in Computational Biology Network is an online networking platform accelerating opportunity at the intersection of biology, math, and computer science worldwide. This podcast is produced, edited, and published independently by Janae Adams and Melissa Minto. We'd like to thank our community at Cambridge Innovation Center Philadelphia for their studio resources as well. Find out more at blackwomencontinbio.org or get a jumpstart on all things BWCB at our Linktree link, which you can find at L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash B-W-C-B. Thank you.